so there's very little, it seems, um, overt addressing of the heart of the Buddha's teachings, interestingly enough, which is awakening. You know, if, if the Buddha hadn't woken up, um, most of us wouldn't be sitting here. Uh, and given that that experience is something that, that if you look at the, the uh, you know, the earliest talks we have, the Buddha didn't feel that that was unique to him. Uh, and he didn't feel that he was some sort of special being uh, that only came along once in a while. The expectations that he had for his community were the same for uh, so-called mendicants, the wanderers, or those who stayed at home. That the understanding, uh, the expectations around understanding and around realization were not two separate sort of levels. Some people are drawn to a householder's life. Some people are drawn to a wandering life. Some people are drawn to a monastic life. As far as I can tell in in reading, there was really no distinction that he made in terms of one's better than the other. And that the message was everybody, everybody is capable of realizing their true fundamental nature. So some of you probably know the the descriptions in the suttas about uh, sort of what the Buddha woke up to. And it's very simple and direct. Uh, What's come to be known as conditioned co-arising, that one thing is, you know, connected to another, connected to another, connected to another. And the insight that arises from that in addition to... So, you know, clearly there was an historical person who had this transformative experience. And then he tried to make that available in some ways. Put some structure around something that is ineffable. You know, I mean, how can, how can you know, one person tell another how salty a glass of water is? You know, you can, you can encourage them to pick it up and have a taste, and often the person will look all over the room and it's like right there in front of them, right? But it takes a certain amount of guidance. It takes a certain amount of pointing out to say, no, just here it is. This is how you use the hand. Right? Pick it up and have a taste. So much of those teachings are about that. Things like meta practice or breath awareness practice, or inquiry. They're not ends in themselves, which is what often happens with us. We end up, you know, practicing for 40 years and still doing a practice, which is really a shame because it's, it's like if I'm headed to New York and I pass by a sign that says New York this way, I say, Oh, wow, New York. And I just, that's where I stop. I stop at the sign. I never get to the city. And if we're stuck in this doing, this accomplishing, this trying to to get something that we think we don't already have, we're stuck at the signpost. 
So the Buddha said, at least this is what's recorded in the earliest writing down of these teachings, dependent co-arising, out of that comes things like, well, if everything's connected, what about this business of separation? If everything depends on everything else, and that there's nothing that is not related in some way, you know, the, the sort of pith teaching is, if this is, that is. If this is not, that is not. That there is no according to the Buddha's insight, there is no independent thing there. And it doesn't mean that there are not apparent forms and things appear solid and that we tell ourselves stories about that. But one of the two fundamental insights that was transformative for the Buddha was that everything's connected and everything's moving. The other was what he called nirvana, which is the stilling of afflictive emotions, reactivity, grabbing onto, pushing away. And that's the, in the four, what one, what Stephen Batchelor calls the four tasks, which I've actually come to love, as opposed to the four truths. You know, that these are things to be realized rather than truths to be taken at face value and believed. Which I think it's, it's more than just a question of semantics. That, that these are things to really taste. I mean, we don't know the water as, as bitter or sour or salty or sweet unless we taste it. I can't tell you, you can't tell me. So this, this direct tasting of this. One of the ways to practice with this, and, and the Buddha said, you want to you know awakening, you want to know nirvana, notice when the mind is not reactive. So one of the values of sitting practice right, is we learn to stay with what we think is really solid and sometimes really awful. I mean, it feels really awful sometimes. You know, the physical discomfort, the emotional discomfort. And we make an agreement with ourselves to stay put. And over time, we develop our capacity to stay with whatever comes up. That everything is workable. I mean, that's one of the real gifts, I think, of this practice. And it just, I mean, the first time I heard it and really got it, it just really blew me away that everything is workable. Now, being told that, you know, that in 50 cents won't get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, right? But when you, when you on your own experience, find that, yeah, wow, I, you know, there's no way I can sit a half-day retreat. That's just way beyond my capacity. And then you find, wow, I guess I could. I did it but I could never do a whole day. I mean, it actually starts with a much lower bar than that. Sit 15 minutes, are you out of your mind? Right? Now, anybody who's new to practice, who's come new to practice, and somebody says, well, sit down for 30 minutes and see what happens. 
there's a reason we ask our students not to move. And that's because they'd be throwing stuff at us all the time. Right? Because when we sit down and we are really intimate with ourselves in that way, it's interesting, to say the least. And, but we develop our innate capacity to stay with what's happening. And we learn from that. We learn that what we thought was solid is not. That the stories we tell ourselves that lead us to believe that something's solid are not true. That the believed thoughts that drive our behavior and create this incredible tension that so many of us carry around don't hold up under close watching. And we begin to see what happens when a thought comes up and the body reacts to it and the mind reacts to the body's reaction. And then when that on its own fades and goes quiet. That moment of going out, of Naroda, of the, that fire going out on its own that moment is what the Buddha points to as nirvana. That seems to me to be quite available. To, I mean, I had a friend who once described me as not the sharpest tool in the shed. I could get that. Anybody can get that. With the support of a community, with the support of a teacher, with a certain level of intention to really see what's actually happening. And then you begin to get a taste of what the Buddha called nirvana, which is simply life as it is without our reactivity creating this this tension, this almost tearing kind of feeling internally, where our desire, our wanting, our grasping, or our aversion is demanding that life be other than it is. I don't know about you, but life seems to me to be pretty stubbornly persistent in showing up exactly as it is. And one of the things we get from sitting practice is to see we don't really get much of a vote on that. And if if I'm putting all my money, all my hope on my happiness dependent on getting life to behave the way I think it should be, guess what? Life wins. Every single time. So this this waking up begins to shift from me and self-view. It begins to to, to erode that the, the, or to, to show us that that's not as solid as we think it is. This I, me, and mine. This demand that I'm over here, you're over there, and life needs to behave the way I think it should. This shift in self-view is often felt as... Well, no, that's not true. There are people who experience that shift as quite dramatic. 
quite dramatic. And there are other people who, there's an image uh, from the Zen tradition that waking up is like taking a walk in the evening fog. And you take this long ramble through the countryside and you get home and you find you're soaking wet and you didn't even realize you were getting wet as you made your walk. Then you look and it's like, wow, I don't know how this happened, but it's different. You know, Uh, it's different. I'm not blowing up in the same way I used to. That a reaction will come up, but there doesn't seem to be anything there to sustain it. You know, we don't get to control our reflexes. By definition, they're reflexes. And many of them are very deeply conditioned. The problem is we take everything personally. So a, a, a reflex, you know, jerks. Somebody cuts me off in traffic and, you know, there's that reflex. The selfing story about, oh, he did that or she did that to me. That's what maintains this. Otherwise, it's just a ripple that passes through. No problem. And as we really begin to experience, our, our direct experience, as this me as not what it thinks it is, it's not this solid thing that has to protect itself all the time. You know, it's a really interesting question to ask, well, who got hurt here? Who got offended? And to just hang out with that question can be quite instructive. Who's practicing? You know, who is in such a hurry here? where do I think I'm going anyway? You know, we begin to see that these things that come up, we don't get to choose them. They come up. Practice is in some ways just simply being with this stuff and letting it teach us its true nature. That it's moving, it's not substantial. The mind is the same way. It's moving. It's not substantial. The stories that the mind tells that leads to this sense of, of solidity is a story. And when those, when those story sunglasses begin to get defogged and, and they come off a little bit, what's left is this. You know, there's a, there's a saying from the Advaita Vedanta tradition, that, uh, how does it go? We are that which we seek. We are that which we seek. Which has struck me more and more recently is really quite beautiful. Because the Buddha is not pointing to something out there. He's, ta- he's talking about, you know, take a look and see what's actually happening. On direct observation, on direct experience. Not our stories about it. But it's like we ask, so what is there when there is no thinking? And we hang out at the end of that question. And, you know, so the mind, well, what I think is, you know, what is there when there is no thinking? And we rest at that alert, energized, interested engagement. 
and simply acknowledge what we actually see. And the intimacy comes, I mean, this is really a practice of intimacy, of learning our way into intimacy. That we are the life that we want. There's no, there's no separation. And that doesn't mean, you know, we won't continue to use thinking. Thinking will continue to happen. It doesn't mean when I go out to the parking lot, I'm going to try and get in your car and go home. Right? And when I get home, I'm not going to try and go into the house next door. It doesn't make us stupid. It makes us see what's actually there. And, and there's a kind of calm and confidence and relaxation. There's a kind of ease that comes with that. And we don't have to practice for the rest of our lives to get a taste of that. It's available on the cushion. Just notice. You know, at some point, you're, we're off in la-la land, right? I'm going to be with the breath. Okay, in, out, in, out. What do you suppose is waiting for me at home on the stove? Because I'm not eating today. Uh, right? It's just how it goes. That's what the mind does. The mind wakes itself up. We don't get to choose when the, it drifts off. Just notice that. And the only way you'll notice it is that all of a sudden you'll be waking up out of that, which, by the way, you also didn't choose, right? I mean, anybody in this room make choices about, oh, I'm going to now plan the rest of my life during this sitting? You may found, you find yourself waking up out of that, right? And you didn't say, oh, I'm going to take 10 minutes and plot out my life, and then I'm going to wake back up again. What happens at that moment where the mind wakes itself up is that it gets backfilled. Thinking immediately will jump in and say, oh, I drifted off again, I shouldn't be doing that. Or I'll never get this right. Or whatever the story is that comes up. And it covers right over that moment of awakening. That moment of clarity of, and there's really no word that, that captures it. And that's happening continuously throughout the day. All we have to do is tilt ourselves a little bit towards noticing that. Begin to notice on the cushion when, you know, you're... And all of a sudden there's an awareness of that. And for some reason, because you've been doing this for a while, you're better able to kind of just stay with that and see the urge to push it away or see the urge to fix it. And you don't push that away. And it will teach you the truth. That whatever we think about it is at some point untrue. And that this direct acknowledgement of our bare experience is all we really need. Now, do we get a diploma? You know, we have this, wow, I, you know, I saw it. Well, immediately it's like, eh, no. 
I saw it. Well, now I, now I get to put it up on a, you know, I saw, oh, wow, see, I can put this up here. Now I can, I can do this to it and, and, you know, look at me. And that's what the mind does. It's not a bad thing. It's just like, wow, that's interesting, right? There's a saying that goes, sudden enlightenment, gradual cultivation. Gradual cultivation, sudden enlightenment. Gradual cultivation, <laughs> right? I mean, there's, there's this waking up that is, is in our nature to happen. Sometimes it feels quite significant. Other times it's barely noticeable. And we fall back to sleep again. That's what human beings do. There's this mythology that once you're awake, you're always awake. Well, I've never seen it. I mean, it's like I'm not quite from Iowa or Kansas or wherever it is, but I'm from Indiana, and you show me. I'll sign up. You know, bring me somebody who's like continuously awake. I'm on the ground. I've seen some pretty awake people, and I've never seen somebody who's, you know, never gets reactive, fear never arises. That's, That's fairy tale land. The difference is that there's not so much of me there to get in the way of this stuff that comes up. So it tends to burn itself out much more quickly. You know, there's a, one teacher used the image of water on a skillet. You know, you throw some droplets of water on a cold skillet, then you just kind of sit there, right? Heat the skillet up and throw water on it. Depending on how hot the skill it is, maybe it goes and it's gone. Maybe it goes and it's gone. Right? The water will still come up and hit the skillet. You know, this does not make us a non-human being. It shifts our view, though. There's a, there is a, a shift in view. And once that happens, that view somehow... And I don't really understand this. I've never... I, that that view becomes where the mind finds its refuge. And to me that's part of what the that's part of what taking refuges is about. It's this sort of ritual pointing to, and we have so few rituals in this culture, right? Um, it's it's an acknowledgement. It's a taking refuge in the Buddha. That's great. But it's not going to fry your eggs for you. And it will not wake you up. Okay? That's not what the Buddha was talking about, taking refuge in the Buddha. Taking refuge in waking up. And that waking up is happening over and over again. Now, the, the question in the talk, which I should probably touch on at least for a minute, is, you sure you want this? Is this really what you're looking to sign up for? Because, and not everybody's drawn to this, and if you're not drawn to it, that's fine. You'll be drawn to something. You know, or you wouldn't be sitting here. So if what I'm saying makes no sense, or it's just like, yeah, this doesn't feel like a good fit for me, no problem. The very fact that we're here together is amazing that everybody in this room has gotten hooked by something. Honor that. 
okay? Find a teacher or a, you know, a spiritual friend or whatever that can help you stoke that and let that grow. So one of, the, one of the things that seems to occur in this shift of view is that yeah, it doesn't revolve around me quite so much. And frankly, when that process is working, that's not a lot of fun. Because part of what you experience is, one part of the mind says, yeah, this, this me business just doesn't quite seem to fit. But the me is still screaming pretty loudly. You know, it's almost like a part of the, the mind is offended, threatened by this. And we begin to bump up against things like, if my story about the fact my partner no doesn't turn off the lights or closes the doors... You know, and I'm really kind of tweaked about that. If that's really true, that you know, that's going on and I'm tweaked about it, who is it that's tweaked? Where's where's the investment that, that keeps that, you know, that irritation smoldering? And there's usually something that we're hanging on to we don't want to let go of. And when we start bumping up against this, you know, Chogyam Trungpa, the Tibetan teacher who in some ways was an awful human being, um, and also did some brilliant teaching. And that's, that's one that I still quite can't, can't quite get my mind around. You know, that it almost becomes an excuse. I see it in the Zen tradition. I see it in most contemplative traditions where the brilliant teacher, but they're, you know, having sex with their students and they're, you know, like stealing from the corporation. <laughs> it's like, how does this, you know, how does this, this split happen? And what does that mean, you know? But one of the things that, that um, he pointed to was, and... So I completely lost the thread, and I want to say something about that. <laughs> because I, I learned that there's a diagnosis for this. Some of you of my age will find comfort in this. It's CRS. Can't remember shit. <laughs> and so I had a CRS moment. <laughs> and I can't remember why, why Trumpa came to mind, but anyway, it's gone. So the point is... <laughs> That this erodes, you know, that there, there's a kind of rubbing in our practice with this, this wanting self that really clings to the story of its independence. And it's not to say we don't have a self. I mean, I think you find the most enlightened person on the planet who I, in my encounter, was a woman named Vimla Takar. And you know, if she was walking down the street and, hey, Vimla, she'd turn and say, yes. <laughs> you know? So there, there, it's not that we lose our identity or get, you know, lost in the void or whatever. In some ways, it really brings out 
our deepest uniqueness is an expression of life. You know, just like no two snowflakes are the same, no two thumbprints are the same, no two human beings are the same. Nobody sees the world like somebody else. And, and there's an incredible beauty in that that, to me, can easily become very threatening. If you don't see it my way, you don't love me. Which is my core belief is I'm not lovable to begin with. And you've just affirmed that. And now we've got a problem. That me begins to get worn away in a certain kind of way where it's it no longer quite is the center of the show in the same powerful kind of way. And it seems to me that this is what the Buddha's teachings most fundamentally point to. And it's so easy to get lost. And, you know, my friend Larry Rosenberg once compared uh, the teachings of J. Krishnamurti and, and the Buddha that Krishnamurti had this one really incredible gem. And he either got it or he didn't. The Buddha offers this department store. You know, I mean, if you need a hammer, there's a department for that. You need some soap, you can get that. You need a back rub, it's over there. You need a little asana, you know, whatever. That, that there's this incredible array of support for practice. And in our culture, that becomes a problem. Because it plays right in to our wanting mind and our, and our conditioned desire to avoid discomfort and to affirm the primacy of me. That I'm doing the practice so I can feel better. And that's, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons most of us get into this, right? There's the felt acknowledgement, yeah, this ain't working out so well. And so we turn to a practice so it is going to feel better. You know, I'm less angry or I'm less scared or, you know, I have better relationships or, you know, whatever, my blood pressure is too high. And that's really important. That's what will get us in the door to real practice. But that's not what these teachings are pointing to. And not everybody's, and this is my, okay, my view is that that's not what these teachings are pointing to. That there's something profoundly transformative, but very simple and very available. And we'll reduce our blood pressure, and it'll probably have some ancillary benefit to our relationships. You know, if it's no longer just about me and defending me and enhancing me, my relationships are probably going to improve. Um, my blood pressure may go down. Because there's not this constant struggle to make life line up the way I think it should be. So there are definitely ancillary benefits. Well, I, I mean, compassion is certainly one of the natural outgrowths of this kind of transformative work. But it's not oh, I'm going to, you know, give you loving kindness or me loving kindness, you know. And that can be, you know, that can be a fine practice. 
but if it stops there, it's profoundly dualistic and just maintains separation. You know, the, the, the deeper sense of compassion and loving kindness arises from, you are me and I am you. And, and if, you know, this hurts, that hurts, and if that hurts, this hurts. And that in, in a sense, there is a felt sense of responsibility and a kind of love that is not personal but gets engaged in very personal ways. And that's, a nat- that's like, that's what's there. You know, that's what's there is our true nature. And practice begins to help us see that those things that are getting in the way, the fear, the anger, the wanting, that they're not what we think we are. In fact, they're not anything at all, no matter how strongly we may feel them in the body or the mind. And then at some point there's a shift that this acknowledging of what our direct experience is somehow turns. And there's there's the knowing that this is what I am. I am this. You know, there's nothing about me or you that stands outside of life. That's where you get somebody saying, well, nobody dies. Because in some way, there is no body who dies. That Life just moves. Now, does that mean that, you know, something happens to one of my kids or my partner? There's not going to be fear and grief, etc. That's, that's part of the deal of being a human being. And... I wouldn't wish that away even if I could. That's part of the liveliness of being alive. And sometimes it's fiercely burning and sometimes it's incredibly beautiful. And no matter what I call it or story I tell about it, it will never capture the mystery of that, ever. And as we begin to really get that, our lives begin to shift. And it's what you might call ordinary magic. And I think that's one way that we can approach the Buddhist teachings and approach awakening.